Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, it is my great pleasure and privilege to interview Dr. Robert Pearl today. The focus of today's dialogue is going to be on Dr. Pearl's latest book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. It is a historical and personal expose on physician culture and the culture of medicine in general. I had the opportunity to read the book prior to its publication, which I believe is on May 18th. And the best way I can introduce this dialogue is by reading part of the review I wrote after reading Robbie's book. And here's what I wrote in part. Uncaring is the most comprehensive and scholarly book I've come across on the interplay between the legacy physician culture and the larger healthcare system. With Uncaring, Dr. Robert Pearl establishes himself as one of the leading medical authors and storytellers of our time. His stories are heartbreaking and heartwarming, and the historical facts, medical stats, and studies he draws upon are engaging, enlightening, and of concern to all of us. So before I introduce Dr. Robert Pearl, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, here's what you can do. As soon as you're done listening to this podcast or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to share it with at least three colleagues or just blast it out on LinkedIn or your professional listserv. I have seen a number of you already begin to do this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Also, I have to say that whatever it is you all are doing, it's working. The number of listeners is literally increasing each and every week over the last couple of months. Last time I checked, we were over 9,000 listeners, which is quite remarkable. So please continue to share and forward the podcast each time you listen to an episode. We're going to create change through the stories we tell and the narratives that begin to dominate the culture of healthcare. Now, speaking of the culture of healthcare and medicine, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, which he led from 1999 to 2017, and the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, which he led from 2009 to 2017. In these roles, he led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the West and East Coasts. Robbie currently serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership, as well as lecturing on information technology and healthcare policy. Robbie's been named as one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physicians. He is the author of Mistreated, a Washington Post bestseller. And of course, his most recent book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, is going to be published uh, this month or this coming month in May of uh, 2021. Uh, Dr. Pearl hosts the popular podcast, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. He also publishes a newsletter with over 12,000 subscribers called Monthly Musings on American Healthcare. And he's a regular contributor to Forbes. Robbie, I I don't know when you get a chance to sleep. It's such a pleasure to have you on the program today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you so much, Zeb, for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and together for helping people understand how we can, once again, make American healthcare the best in the world. Well, let's let's jump into it. And Robbie, I have so much respect for you. I'm, I'm so looking forward to having this opportunity to speak with you once again on the podcast. Why did you write this book now at this point in your career? As you mentioned, three years ago, I published Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. I focused on the systemic challenges a broken insurance system, outdated technology, a greedy pharmaceutical world. And I spoke about the 
transformation in the systematic aspects of medical practice. But as I went around speaking at meetings and talking to organizations, I realized there was something else, something that was being missed in the dialogue. And I started to research what that might be and on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients was the answer. The culture, as you know, is the beliefs, the values, the norms that we learn in medical school and residency, ones that aren't taught in a lecture hall, but we learn by watching those senior to us. We listen to their stories, the languages they use, and we internalize it and keep it across our entire careers. And that culture is both capable of helping us do heroic acts, and it's also capable of allowing us to inflict harm on patients and secondarily on ourselves without us not noticing it. As you mentioned, the book will be coming out in May. All profits from it, as well as from mistreated, go to Doctors Without Borders. And uh, anyone who pre-orders the book by going to the website, robertperlmd.com, can get a signed book plate, a discussion guide, a reading list, and the chance to read the introductory chapter before anyone else. And of course, it'll be delivered to the person's home on May 18th. So Robbie, before we get into some of the statistics and studies that you quote, and it's just, it's such a rich book uh, with so much information, but you also tell phenomenal stories. And I, I literally could not put the book down as, you know, I read it in one weekend. In our correspondence, I asked you for your favorite stories from the book because I was curious. And one of them that you mentioned to me was the Semmelweis story. And it was so, so curious to me that you selected that one because I have to tell you, that's the story that stuck with me the most from reading your book. In fact, when I've mentioned your book to colleagues, that's the story I actually share with them. Now, I have to say, it's a bit haunting, and I've, I've really been wanting to speak to you about it. It's almost a little bit of a therapeutic conversation we're going to have here, because that story, which talks and speaks about the, the historical legacy culture we have in healthcare, it feels like a cautionary note for those of us who are attempting to create a new narrative or trying to move the system forward. I'd love for you to share the story with our listeners, and I'd also like to hear what lessons you think we should be learning from that story. Ignaz Semmelweis was a physician in Vienna, Austria, and he was appointed the head of the maternity service. He was embarrassed. The mortality in this highly respected European facility was 18%. 18% of the mothers died either during or after childbirth. And what was most embarrassing to him was that the adjacent hospital, one run by midwives, not highly respected physicians, had a mortality rate that was two-thirds lower. Now, at the time, the leading cause of death was puerperal fever. Women would get an infection to the uterus following childbirth, and it would spread systemically, and they would die. The cause was felt to be miasmas, smelly particles wafting up from the streets below. Semmelweis said to himself, how is it possible that my patients are breathing in these miasmas, but not the ones laboring in this adjacent hospital? And like all great physicians, he came up with hypotheses to test. Now, one of the things that happens in medicine is that serendipity frequently plays a role. And a colleague of his nicks his finger while performing an autopsy on a woman with puerperal fever. And he goes on to develop not just a local hand infection, but systemic disease that seems identical to these women who are dying. Some wise hypothesizes, maybe the doctors are carrying something on their hands or possibly on the leather aprons they wear to protect the well-pressed underlying suits. He instructs every physician before they go into the delivery area, they must put on a clean apron and dip their hands in chlorinated water. And lo and behold, 
mortality falls from 18% to under 2%, a 90% improvement. And for listeners, try to imagine what happened next after he published his article and wrote letters to the hospitals across Europe. The answer, nothing. Almost everyone ignored him. And those who made a comment were quite critical. Practice didn't change. Tens of thousands of women died. And I said to myself when I, when I learned that story, why not? You know, we, we say we don't do certain things because we don't get paid enough money. Well, there was no cost involved in changing this apron and dipping your hands in chlorinated water. We say we don't have enough time and there was not a whole lot of time involved. And I couldn't come up with a logical answer. And my conclusion was based on other research that it had to do with the culture of medicine, this invisible force. It said that doctors were healers held in high esteem. The idea that it could be a physician carrying this problem that was causing the infection seemed impossible. And the leather aprons, these were symbols, symbols of experience. The more pus, the more blood, the better the individual was. How could that, this elevated hierarchical symbol, how could it be the cause of infection? And Simmelweiss dies four years later alone in a mental institution. And I thought, Zev, about what's happening in healthcare today. You know, as we know, the leading cause of death for hospitalized patients is a hospital-acquired infection in the United States. We know that the leading organism is C. difficile. And unlike the coronavirus, it doesn't travel through the air. It's only carried on people's hands. And yet there's been 40 or 50 different studies in different institutions that have shown that when physicians go from one patient's room to the next, they fail to wash their hands a third of the time. Once again, there's no cost with alcohol-based disinfectants a second or two to dip your hands in the solution. There's something about that culture that communicates to physicians that they can't be the source of the infection. And when a patient dies, they assume it had to be someone else. It's this culture, this invisible force that I started to discover in many, many problems in American medicine, but I'll also say I discovered it in many of the heroic and positive things that doctors have done, particularly during COVID-19. What's haunting about this story, Semmelweis began his work in the 1840s. He published that thesis in 1861, sent those letters out, is ignored by the medical establishment and dies destitute in a mental asylum in 1865, 2021 hospital-acquired infections are the fourth leading cause of death in the country. And that came right from, from your book, and it was referenced. And, you know, it, it's a legacy culture that uh, is still impacting care today. It doesn't take anything away from, as you were pointing out, the, the positive aspects of the culture, but it does speak to a culture that is incredibly slow to change. And I know I'm, I'm putting off getting into the statistics and the studies, but there's another story in the book that I also, uh, it was my second favorite story, and I've actually already used it in presentations across the country. It's the story you told about the Committee on the Costs of Medical Care. In my book on reframing healthcare, I talk about, I use this term, the Groundhog Day, that you wake up and I've throughout my 30 some odd year career in healthcare, it feels like you wake up and you're still dealing with the same problems and talking about them in the same way you did you know, the day before and the day before that and the day before that. But this story that you told, this historical footnote, takes that to a whole different level. So can you describe the committee, what the Committee on the Cost of Medical Care, what their recommendations were first? And then could you tell the audience what year those recommendations were made? Certainly. So this committee was shocked about how fast the price of health coverage was moving. And they brought together leading academics, leading physicians, 
leading individuals from across the country. And they published the results after several years of research. And they concluded that first of all, we had to move from a fee-for-service system, one that rewards volume, to a capitated, a single payment that is based upon the quality of care provided, the value achieved. And then they described what it would take relative to a redesigning of the delivery system. And they pointed out that for care to become higher quality at lower cost, you had to find ways to be able to collaborate and cooperate better than physicians were doing at the time. And the year, 1934. Now, they took this committee, this August committee, took their research recommendations to the president of the United States at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and what happened? At first, Roosevelt was interested in moving forward, but the organizations of American healthcare, particularly the AMA at the time, opposed it, lobbied Congress, and Roosevelt being a very astute politician, traded this type of restructuring, changed reimbursement for healthcare into other benefits for the American worker. And the entire process went away, little change happened, And as I point out in the book, time and time again, with Truman and with Nixon and with Clinton and with Obama, and even uh, with the people working for President Trump, little change happened despite everyone coming to the same conclusion that the only way to address the failures of the American healthcare system is to change payment at the delivery level to move from fee-for-service where you can increase your personal income simply by doing more, whether it adds any value or not, and moving towards a single payment for a population of patients and finding ways to create an integrated, collaborative, coordinated care delivery system led at least equally by physicians. It is such a gripping story, as is the Semmelweis one, and people may, you know, shirk it off as being sort of a historical footnote, except for the fact that, you know, again, as you point out, decade after decade after decade, including the recent decades, uh, recommendations are made and they're not, uh, they're not taken up. And, you know, it just speaks to me about, for me, I I find it helpful, uh, a little bit frustrating, but helpful in that it really points out as you, I mean, your whole book that what we are dealing with here is far deeper than just knowledge and information. It's really about a culture. You know, I think we have to reframe the culture. And this is a job that if you don't understand it and don't know what you're dealing with, it's going to be impossible to address. But I think this is the role of leadership today, which is really to completely reframe the culture of American healthcare. And and that's why I'm, I'm asking you to share these stories and going through them. Any thoughts about that? I concur with you completely. We need to reframe both the systemic and the cultural areas. And I often get asked on this theme, which comes first? And what I respond is they move together. Because as you change the way that doctors are reimbursed, as you change the structures that exist, the culture evolves with them. And what I mean by that is that once the delivery system is paid a single payment to care for a group of patients and held to quality outcomes and service access, I mean, clinical access and service satisfaction, 
all of a sudden what doctors believe and what they value and their norms start to change. Because under that circumstance, prevention starts to become very important. In a fee-for-service world, it's all about intervention. Patient safety and avoiding medical error becomes very important. And as we know, often hospitals will do better when medical errors happen because they get paid twice as do the physicians providing the care. You start to avoid complications of chronic disease. And I'm struck by the fact that across the United States today, high blood pressure, the number one cause of stroke and kidney failure is controlled 55 to 60% of the time when we know that there are medical groups out there doing it 90%. Those kinds of pieces start to happen. When do, once you are paid in that type of way and held to those standards, you start to embrace technology. I mean, I was amazed during the coronavirus pandemic, Zev, that telemedicine became 60%, 70% of many doctors' practices. It's been around for a long time. A decade ago, I wrote a piece in Health Affairs about why I predicted it should replace 30% of what physicians do in their office. And a decade later, at least, prior, at least eight years later, prior to the pandemic, it was one or 2% of medical care because in the culture of medicine, these things are not valued. We don't value prevention. For that matter, we don't value primary care. I mean, the data has been around for 20 years. Add 10 primary care physicians to a community and you increase longevity by two and a half times, adding 10 specialists. And in the hierarchy of medicine, primary care is towards the bottom and interventionalists are towards the top. And that you learn very early in medical school, and we don't fully value technology that makes care more convenient for patients. The patient's time in the medical culture is not particularly important. What do we value? We value the things that are bright and shiny, the robot in the operating room or the proton beam accelerator. These are things that we value, multi-million dollar instruments for which we can bill a lot. And it's why I go back to the system and the culture move together. But having said that, I want to at least warn listeners that it's not going to be an easy ride, that physicians are likely to go through the five stages of Kubler-Ross's loss. They're likely to not deny initially that they have to change. Everything's going to go back to normal. They're going to tell themselves then they can get angry when in the post-coronavirus era, pressure is brought to lower costs. They're going to say it's not possible. Then they're going to start bargaining. How little do I have to change? Can I go to capitation Tuesday and Thursday and fee-for-service Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Then depression, then finally acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean that it's going to be their first choice. It's going to mean that's the reality they face as our nation comes out of the coronavirus era. And during that time period, we find ourselves with a federal government that has $8 trillion more uh, money that's been borrowed, greater deficit that has to be repaid and repaid with interest. It's states that by law have to have balanced budgets, now face higher unemployment, lower tax revenue, and more patients, more people on Medicaid. And they're going to face the reality that small businesses, the ones that employ most Americans, are the ones that now have burned through their savings and find themselves in a situation where they have to lower their costs. Yeah, the big companies like Amazon and Netflix and Apple are going to do okay. But the ones that employ the 150 million Americans are going to be suffering this, I think, will be the new reality that's out there. And I believe in that circumstance, what you're going to see is that a few people will start to change, propelled by your book and your thinking and your podcast. And as they start to make these changes and transform how healthcare is delivered, it's going to be like Roger Bannister. You know, before he breaks the four-minute mile, we say it's impossible. Within three years afterwards, 10 other people do it. I'm optimistic, actually, at the work that you've been leading for a long time at restructuring and reframing American healthcare 
and the work that I'm doing right now around the culture of medicine together will start to move our nation in the right direction. Well, thank you. That was a very, very honest look at what's happening now in our economy in the post-COVID era. You know, in your book, you, you mentioned that one of the consequences is the cost of healthcare will have to come down and it will lead either to, and you give us a choice A or B, uh, rationing or transformation. Can you say more about that? We've said that it should come down. We've said that it must come down literally since 1934. You know, we've had president after president who's tried to come up with a way to make that occur. And yet, what did we see in 2019? Two months before COVID-19, before the coronavirus comes ashore in the United States, what we see is that the federal government puts out a report predicting that the cost of care is going to go up 5 to 6% every year for the next 10 years. I mean, think about that. We're taking a $3.7 trillion industry, one that we know, by the way, has a lot of ineffective care. 30% of what doctors do, according to the Mayo Clinic, based upon studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, have been shown to add little or no value, and we still do them. And it's going to go up 60 to 70% by the time you compound those numbers year over year over the next decade. And no one blinks. They think this is what is expected in a nation that's simply not going to be able to afford it. And the thing I tell people is if you can't pay for something, you still may think it's the greatest thing in the whole world, but you can't buy it. And I think that that's what we're going to find ourselves in the post-coronavirus era. And that will be the driver. It could be driven by businesses as they contract with doctors for care. Anyone in the insurance world who believes that they're going to look for the best insurance company is deceiving themselves. It could be driven by Amazon. You know, when Haven came out three years ago, I wrote in a Forbes piece that anyone who believes that Jeff Bezos is starting Haven in order to provide not-for-profit care to the one million employees of him, Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway believes that Amazon only sells books. No, this was going to be a for-profit venture and we're already seeing it. We're seeing it as Amazon will now be offering telemedicine everywhere because you can do that with telemedicine and providing direct patient care in the markets where it has locations. And I think it's, it could be led at that level uh, or if it's not going to be led by the businesses, I'm hoping it's going to be led by doctors. My reason for saying that after all of these years is that the alternative, which is going to be rationing, will be so problematic for a physician culture, one that has sworn an oath to first do no harm. I think that everyone recognizes that a fee-for-service mentality is not going to be capable of bringing costs to a consistent lower level. And if you think about it, how can you accomplish that? As you say, there's only two ways. You can ration the care, create a fixed budget, and tell people who are over a certain age, you can't get heart surgery, create cues for people needing total joint replacements so that when the dollars are available, you get your care, not when you need it, but when the dollars are simply available, saying that certain new medications are too expensive, even if they work well, not the ones that don't work, but the ones that do work well, you can create a rationing system, which I believe will be really problematic for doctors, or you can transform it into a system that is capitated and integrated and technologically enabled and well-led I think that's going to be the two choices that exist out there. And I'm hopeful that faced with that reality, that doctors, along with hospitals and along with administrators, will make this change happen because the alternative is so problematic from a cultural perspective. Again, even if they'd rather nothing changed, they're going to come to the recognition that change will happen. Not that it should happen. It will happen 
because people can't afford healthcare, they simply will pick an alternative that works. Who would have guessed, and again, well, you would have, but who would have guessed that Amazon would now be offering, like you say, telemedicine, but they're offering, you know, employer care, employee care. It's a hybrid, virtual, in-person offering, and they're spreading it across the country. And of course, they're not the only ones. There's the CVS Health with the health hubs and some of the work they're doing in telemedicine and and senior care and home-based care. And then the payers are are transforming. They're no longer insurance companies. They're healthcare delivery systems. And whether it's Humana or Optum, you know, we're seeing even some of the tech giants uh, get into the game as well. Uh, just reading about uh, Microsoft and their acquisition of Nuance, the CEO was very, very clear uh, that uh, artificial intelligence is the number one thing in technology and healthcare is the number one use case. That's a direct quote lifted from a recent uh, report from Microsoft, a recent PR report. Um, so, I mean, the game has changed and there are going to be options. I mean, you spent years and years uh, as a CEO in healthcare. And so, you know, the ins and outs as well as anyone. And we may know this, but why is it so hard uh, on a very, very practical level for healthcare leaders? across the country, whether they're in provider groups or whether on the payer side, you know, it's almost this picture of it. It feels like we're in this Gordian knot, you know, it's, it's this catch 22 of, you know, even if people want to change in your opinion, what is so challenging for leaders to make this change on a practical level? To me, it comes down to culture. Let's take one example. And again, put it into the context of reframing a concept that you've described so well. The culture of medicine says that the epitome of care is in person in a single physician's office. That's what we believe. But now step back and re-look at the process. And yes, for some things that's necessary, but look at how much more advantageous is telemedicine provides. You can bring the world's expert in anywhere you don't have to be limited by who's in your local community. And if you want to believe that every physician is the same, I guess it doesn't matter. But if you want to believe there are some people with more expertise and more experience, why not bring them into your house? If you start to think about from a operational efficiency perspective, and you can bring 10 physicians together to provide care rather than 10 individuals providing the care. It's so much more efficacious. But it all goes against the way that doctors work. I mean, you remember people talk about how physicians don't like to work together. They value their own experience. We see variation in practice as being something about improvement. It was in the last century when we didn't have medical knowledge, now we know what to do. And these large businesses, listeners should understand, what they're able to do is to apply the principles that bring large number of doctors together in a way that increase care. Let me give you some more examples, personal examples for myself and family members that I talk about in the book. The typical physician office, what do we do at five o'clock? We tell the patients we're closed, go to the emergency department. What could be worse medical care than doing that in the evening? If they don't have the information, if there's not going to be any continuity, if they're looking really to decide whether they need to be hospitalized or not, how can you use groups of doctors or telemedicine to provide care 24 by 7? Not every doctor, obviously, doing it along that time. But how do we work together in a new model? And that's where the culture of medicine comes into play because the culture preserves the past. It preserves the ways of the system that we like so much. And for all of the complaints that as physicians we have about that, we like what, what exists. But I'll give you an example from when I was CEO in Kaiser Permanente. We put in a place whereby, or a system whereby, if a primary care physician is seeing a patient and he or she believes that they need to have expertise from a specialist, rather than doing the traditional cultural thing, go home and call the specialist office or I'll send a consult, 
We brought the specialist into the exam room, sometimes with videos, sometimes with digital tools. And 40% of the time, we could solve the patient's problem then. 70% of the rashes that primary care physicians needed a dermatologist, not the ones they took care of. These are the ones where they were about to send the patient to the dermatologist. By taking a digital picture and having one dermatologist caring for a large number of primary care physicians, any one of whom at any given time could have a patient with a rash, but they all wouldn't at any given time. 70% of those patients within six minutes had a diagnosis and went home with treatment. I don't know what it's like where you practice, Ev, but most places that I've been, dermatology is six days, six weeks, or six months. This was six minutes. Or another example, in the Mid-Atlantic, we had an emergency room physician in the telephone center, 24 by seven. Not the same one, obviously, but a physician with emergency room expertise. And so families could call the child at 103 fever. What should I do? Is it okay? Should I bring the child to the emergency department? Should I bring the child somewhere where you or one of your colleagues can see them? And because the doctor could see the kid riding his bicycle around the living room, and he might say, it looks pretty good. Here's what you might do. Or see the kid listless in bed. He's worried about meningitis, telling the child to come into the emergency room immediately. Higher quality, more convenient, more trusting, lower cost. A few years ago, Zev, I was in Oregon, and I saw a sign in a health department. Across the top, it said quality, service, and cost. And along the bottom, it said pick any two. That's the world of the 20th century. We in the 21st century have the ability to do all three. The problem is it's going to require that we change both the way that medicine is structured, how it's reimbursed, and the culture. And it's that culture that is the anchor stopping the change from happening and why I wrote the book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And if I can add one more thing, Zev, you know, we talk a lot about moral injury. And if you ask physicians about moral injury, they will always tell you it is something that's being done to them. It's because they can't provide great care to patients and make no doubt about it. That happens a lot. But we ignore the moral injury that we create for ourselves. I want to just simply point out, listeners, many of them will not like it. 20% of patients who go to to the ER or to the operating room, according to data published this week, receive surprise medical billing. And when they couldn't pay, because very often the people who couldn't pay are the people who were the poorest, the institutions that hired the doctors sued the patients. Now, how is that not moral injury? Or when we do things that we know add little value based upon the literature, the 30% of medical care, How is that not moral injury? I see that as a fine-grained sieve. We think it stays inside, but it slowly comes out, and we pay the price for that, and I think that has not been adequately recognized. We have to change the systematic, the systemic issues and problems. They are very real, and they're bad for both doctors and patients, but the culture of medicine which at times can make doctors into heroes, is also at other times quite problematic. And if we have any question about it, we can look at some of the data around racism in healthcare, where again, if you ask physicians, why do three times as many black patients die from COVID than white patients? They'll point to systemic issues. They have jobs they can't stay home and do virtually. They take buses and subways. They live in multi-generational houses. But they ignore the fact that when two patients came to the emergency department early in the pandemic, one a white patient, one a black patient, with exactly the same symptoms, and the physician knew there's only a certain number of testing kits they could have that night, twice as often they'd test a white patient than a black patient. And when the patient had a procedure, 40% 
less pain medication given postoperatively. And as we know, the mortality among black women is three times higher than white women, except when the attending physician is a black physician, in which case the mortality drops for the black patient to the same level as for white patients. These are the types of things that we don't see because the culture is invisible. I often talk about being growing up in North Carolina in an environment of smoke and you stop ignoring it. But if you come from Berkeley into that same room, you start coughing and your eyes start watering. We don't see the culture, but it has tremendous consequences for patients and for the providers of care. For me, there's an elephant in the room and, and you actually raised it in our correspondence. I asked you, what would you ask healthcare leaders and physicians to do differently than they're doing now today? And you replied, and I'm quoting, to move from fee-for-service to capitation, to work together to improve medical care rather than maximize volume, and to embrace technology that makes care more convenient for patients. Now, I couldn't come up with a better list of three directions for healthcare today. But in particular, the first two really have to do with this issue of our fee-for-service payment system. How would you relate that? Is that separate from culture? Is that you know, part of the system we have to just reframe and change, or, or is that also tied up in the culture? That drives the culture. You know, Last summer, I had a chance to speak to the CEOs of the nation's 50 largest businesses, and I started the conversation by asking them, how many of you have remodeled a kitchen or a bathroom in the past five years? And every hand went up. And I said, how many of you, and remember, these are the CEOs of the companies, they're very wealthy people. How many of you paid the contractor on time and materials basis? And every hand came down. And then I asked them, why do you believe, or do you believe that contractors are dishonest and doctors are all honest? It's not a question of honesty and dishonesty. It's not a question of character. It's, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, as you said, and we say, tell me the incentives and I'll tell you the way that people are going to behave. And that's what we see. When people are paid on a basis of utilization, they conclude that more utilization is good. If it wasn't good, why would people pay them more? I mean, that's just the logical assumption and it gets built into the culture. When you start to pay people on a basis of a single capitated payment with quality and satisfaction and access metrics to make sure that somehow they're not cutting any corners, that's when they start to ask, how do we do this better? How do we do it more efficiently? Again, I'll give you another really great example of this, which was that when we were looking at total joint replacement a few years ago, what we saw is that the average patient was spending about three days in the hospital following the procedure. And we thought that was good because across the country, it was probably five days. And then a physician someplace said, I wonder, is there a better way to do it? Because remember, in Kaiser Permanente, 90% of our revenue was capitated. They said, I wonder what it would take to give better care on an outpatient basis. And it's a hard question. You've got to prepare the patient. You've got to make sure that they have the right support at home. You have to uh, make sure you use an anesthetic that's longer acting. You have to have physical therapy, seeing them in the recovery room. But when you do all of the pieces, pieces that don't necessarily come naturally in the culture of medicine, 60 to 70% of patients went home the same day. And when we surveyed the outcomes, not only was the quality better, but the satisfaction was significantly higher because they felt adequately prepared. Now ask yourself in the culture of medicine, is that what we value? Do surgeons work with patients often before they come to the operating room? Do we look for opportunities to ambulate people more quickly? Do we ask them how happy are they? No. We said, did we do an operation? Was there an infection? Did everything go okay? Good. We're excellent. And so it starts to be in that mode when you change how physicians are paid, 
they start to ask the right set of questions. And when they come together in an integrated fashion, not I'm better than you and I don't want to share anything, but how do we work together? All of a sudden, creative ideas come through. And when leadership is there to take the innovations that happen locally and spread them out more broadly, transformation, reframing, reconstruction of delivery, all happen. And the people that benefit are both the patients and the doctors. To me, it's it's increasingly so obvious that fee-for-service is is this elephant in the room, but it's it's the underlying cause for our maladaptive and harmful culture and system. I think it's at the bottom of both uh, the things you're talking about, we're talking about today. Now, I, I just want to ask you, though, clearly this is a serious critique of the culture of medicine and healthcare. And there are some, it's going to be hard to hear for some folks. I know parts of it are hard for me to hear, to be honest with you. And, and some might even take offense. But you, you know, you're a physician, you've led physicians. I know you've got incredible respect as I do for physicians. And, and you know, I end each podcast episode talking about the people who are providing care in a note of gratitude. You talk about in your book, though, that it's actually in the title that the culture is actually not only harming patients, which is obviously the most important thing, but it's also harming physicians and others in the system. Could you speak about that for a moment? If you survey doctors about burnout, they will tell you that the three reasons why physicians are burned out today are inadequate income, bureaucratic tasks, and the clunky computer that get, that literally gets between them and the patient. And again, I want to stress for listeners, all three are true. Nothing that I'm saying about the culture negates anything about the systemic problems that exist. All three of those things need to be addressed. But I also look at the data, the survey data that comes predominantly out of Netscape. And I say, when I look at the data, it doesn't match those three exactly. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, what we know is that pediatricians actually have a relatively low rate of burnout compared to adult medicine physicians, even though they earn less money. And the specialty that has the highest rate of burnout in the United States is urology. Over 50% of urologists report the dissatisfaction, the lack of fulfillment, the fatigue that we label burnout. Others prefer the term moral injury. This is strange. I mean, urologists earn on average close to half a million dollars, double what primary care physicians do, and yet they have higher rates of burnout. So it can't be just the money. And at the bottom of the burnout scale are several specialties in surgery, like orthopedics and ophthalmology, 20 points lower. And they have exactly the same bureaucratic tasks. They have the same clunky computers, and they don't make any more money. In fact, ophthalmologists make less. So how do we explain how urology is so burned out? I think it comes down to the physician culture. Because if you look back, what you see is that five to 10 years ago, urology was similar to these other surgical specialties. And then you ask yourself, well, what's changed? Well, income hasn't been the issue because the income of urologists has gone up similar to other specialties. The workload hasn't changed, again, compared to other specialties. The computers haven't gotten any worse compared to the other specialties. So all the other explanations don't work. So what really happened? Somewhere around 2012, the Preventive Task Force, the U.S. Preventive Task Force, decided that the PSA test, the one that was being recommended for men over the age of 50 was not indicated. It gave it a degrading when it looked at preventive services and primary care physicians stopped ordering the test because what was found was that it led to an excessive number of biopsies and surgery led to a significant incidence of impotence and urinary incontinence. And then the second thing that happened was that Studies showed that watchful waiting 
for a lot of cancers was just as good as operating with the same life longevity and chances of dying from the cancer. And so what happened was that the number of robotic prostatectomies went down. And why is this important? Because in the culture of medicine, that's the Star Wars golden award. It's the high-tech surgery that urologists prided themselves on. And when they could no longer do that because the number of cases shrunk too far or because patients either didn't have surgery or went to larger centers of excellence, they were dissatisfied. It doesn't make logical sense. It makes no more logical sense than it did with the hand-washing example from Semmelweis or why doctors don't wash their hands today going from room to room. It's just the way the culture is. We elevate the things that seem really cool, that seem really 21st, 22nd century, and the things that add the most value, extend life the longest, to minimize pain the most, that's not the culture of medicine. Again, if I make an analogy back to those leather aprons in Semmelweis's time, they were the symbols of greatness. And our symbols today are fancy machines and complex procedures. And so that's where I think the culture of medicine. And I base it a lot upon a Sir Michael Marmot from England. And he looked at the relative satisfaction of people amongst different working groups and he could see that social class had something like a four times greater impact than money on people's level of fulfillment and satisfaction. And when they lost status, their dissatisfaction, their lack of fulfillment, their fatigue soared, exactly the symptoms that we associate with burnout and moral injury today. For listeners, it's not an either or, it's definitely an and. The systemic issues exist, but the cultural ones, the ones we inflict on ourselves also exist. The culture is invisible. And when you're inside of it, you often don't notice it, or you simply accept it as reality. That's such a, a great depiction of why we need to, as you point out, not just reframe the system, but also reframe the culture to help patients, but also help physicians. In your book, you also talk about uh, the five C's for transformation. Could you quickly run down that model for what we need to transform? Yeah, the, the five C's is a model that, that requires that we be able to see the problem and commit to making the change happen and that we can come together in ways that allow us to learn from each other and work from each, for each other. And they're all put into the context of specific Cs based upon the experience that I had as I was leading in, as a CEO in Kaiser Permanente. But the last C to me is in many ways the most valuable. And it has to do with the higher level of purpose and mission that I believe is missing from the practice of medicine today. And I think it's something that we have done to ourselves. You know, I, I've done a lot of trips in other countries, um, fixing kids with cleft lip and cleft palate. And when you go on these trips, what do you see? What you see is that you work 12 hours a day. What do you experience? You experience working 12 hours a day and you're eating rice and beans and there's no air conditioning. And at the end of the trip, when you come home, what you find is that the people who have gone, it's been the greatest experience of their life. They come back totally refreshed and energized. If you want to think about it as an anti-burnout strategy, because I believe that they find the reasons that they went into medicine in the first place. You know, I can think of a physician that we sent with Doctors Without Borders, the organization that will be getting the for-profit donations from the selling of the book. We sent physicians to Liberia to take care of people with Ebola. And the physicians had to have IVs running into their arms while they cared for the patients because in the 120-degree suit, they would sweat so much that they would simply become hypotensive and pass out if they were not receiving IV solutions at the same time. 
And these people came back glowing. Uh, in the book, as you know, I talk about a lot of the research that uh, uh, Lori Santos from Yale has made very available. She has a Coursera course that has had 300,000 participants. The course she offers at Yale, a quarter of all students have taken. And in that, she points out how overall, the things that we believe will make us happy are not the ones that actually make us happy. She points out as an example that beyond a certain point, she uses the number 75,000. It's not hers, it's from general research. But maybe it's out of date, maybe it's too low. So it's 150,000 or even $200,000 of income. Every specialty has an average income above that in the United States. And when you earn more, satisfaction doesn't get any higher. And yet we still see income as being the reason why we are not as fulfilled and satisfied as we should be. You know, she points out how grateful, how feeling grateful can make someone be far happier. And I think in medicine today, we're often seeing the glass half empty rather than half full. And how giving to other people, how giving to other people makes us actually happier than getting an equivalent amount of dollars to ourselves. You know, I talk in the book about my uncle, my Uncle Herb. He was a general surgeon. He and my dad were both together in World War II. And when he came back, he opened his office. And I remember him telling me that about 10% of his patients paid him nothing. He didn't tell me because he thought he was special. He didn't tell me because he thought it was something that I should say something praiseworthy about. No, this was just the mentality that existed. And somewhere in the evolution of the physician culture, I believe somewhere entwined in the evolution of the American societal culture, somewhere in the end of the 20th century, that shifted. And I think in medicine, we've not recognized two things. We've not recognized how much we actually can control. That we actually, as physicians, can do so much more to improve the care delivery, that we actually can lead the transformation process. And number two, we focused on aspects, things like income, that I think we'd find that if we spent some of our time, whether it's in a, a community clinic, a safety net program, whether it's in another country, I don't know where it would have to be for each person listening in, but I think at the end of that time, as strange as it sounds, as impossible as it sounds to people, we'd restore a lot of that purpose and satisfaction and that Part of why I offered that 5C pathway is that you can't do one or two steps along the way. You've got to do each of them first by recognizing that the problem exists, which is why I wrote the book on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, and committing to the change and working with others to accomplish it and working for a purpose higher than oneself. Well, Robbie, I just want to thank you so much for ending our dialogue on such a meaningful and, and hopeful and inspiring note. And Zev, I'd like to thank you for the work that you've done and for the improvements in healthcare that you are leading and the results that you're going to get both on behalf of patients and physicians. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Robbie. It's such a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. The wisdom that you have put into your book uh, on caring I definitely recommend for those who are listening to read the book and, and to share it with others. So I want to thank you today. And as I do every episode, and in this particular episode, it's underscored by everything we've been talking about. I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. I think what Robbie's bringing here is uh, a message for us to 
shift the culture, reframe the culture of healthcare, and reframe the system of healthcare to support those of you who are actually doing this work uh, each and every day. This is Zeb Newworth on creating a new healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.